Everyone, America Mao in the metaverse with the two Pauls. Paul, great to have you back again. Thank you. Omicron's a dud and the bond market's seeing through it. Growth equity is seeing through it. Value value is the is the, the trade du jour, but your words, it's a dud. Yeah, that's right. And so I went back and I looked at John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, magisterial masterpiece of a book. And he, he goes through this very carefully. I mean, that work he did was just beautiful on the social, cultural, political, military, epidemiological sort of elements of, of pandemics. And what tends to happen is you get extreme, virulent, deadly outbursts with a, he refers to it as a swarm, a viral swarm, extremely deadly. And then subsequent variants are, viruses are smart. Viruses have been around for 200 million years and they know that they need a live host. And so what you tend to get is a mean reverting effect on, on, on subsequent variants, which allows the virus to live in a host for a longer period of time. And therefore, he makes a great point, viruses mellow after the extreme virulence. Now, it doesn't mean you don't get another one in 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years that's more deadly. We don't know. But in, 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 this, in this pandemic, usually lasting two years, and we're kind of coming up exactly on two years next month, what we see is a mellowing of the variant. So you saw that I sent you a note from the head of epidemiology from Boston General, and he was making a, a similar claim that I made when my research, research to my clients last week. And that is basically that it is, it is mellowing. Omicron has completely overtaken Delta in Massachusetts. There are no more Delta cases. There's nobody in ICU. I've checked with all my sources in Cape Town. ICU is empty. Dublin, ICU is empty. Barcelona, ICU is empty, right? We don't see the ICUs filling up. This is a bronchial variant that just sticks around in your bronchial tubes and your nasal cavity. It hangs around and it gives you, at worst, bronchitis, and then it, and then it, it, it vanishes. Now, I think there's a growing sense. That I heard from a client last night that the um, CDC is going to sort of make it all clear some in, in, in some time within four weeks. Now, the, the head of Boston General said it should peak right around the 21st of January, take a couple of weeks to collapse, and then February is clean up and March is all clear. Mm. And, and these guys aren't going to be talking like that, and especially from one of the best hospitals in the country for you know, frivolous purposes. And so what if the CDC declares an all-clear signal in March? This has huge implications for Hong Kong and China, that, where you and I live for many, many years, who are having a zero Omicron you know, policy right now. And, and yeah. Hong Kong is just a, a complete you know, disaster area because... Yep we got to talk about this party that they had last week. And all of these top officials in the Hong Kong government are now in converted containers in Penny Bay paying the price. <laughs> and so is Hong Kong and China, are they going to have to do a, an about face? Well, look, let's hope so, mate. But again, the trouble with the about face in the China context now is we have this little grand you know, coming out party 2.0, which is the Winter Olympics. And look, I mean, I think you know, officially we have, is it something like 97 cases of Omicron in China? Which, given Australia's got hundreds of thousands, given Australia's got hundreds of thousands and, uh, and, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and one 70th the population, give or take, it doesn't seem to be gelling. So the problem I have with this is, yes, we know that Omicron's a dud in terms of its, its, in terms of how dangerous it is. 
But if you're in yeah. a society which is, let's be clear, fudging the numbers for reasons of they, the Olymp- this is not Japan. The Olympics are going ahead and they're going ahead in a glorious Chinese fashion, right? The trouble is, and the one concern that I have, does Omicron become a little bit out of control because of the optics that need to be created because of the Olympics? And are there supply chain consequences that go on because of that? Well, yeah, I think the people who are coming, the athletes who are coming are going to go through a a pretty horrendous quarantining, which is unfortunate because they're going to have to, they're at the peak of their like physical endurance for their entire lives and they're going to be stuck in hotel rooms. So I don't know how that's going to work. But I'm going to tell you that I bet after giving it a lot of thought over the last few days and talking to a few people who I trust, there is no way China is going to do an about face because this whole lockdown, both in Hong Kong and uh, China, works in their favor. You can keep people out. You can gain control over Hong Kong. You can kick out expats that you don't want. The people who've lived there, like you and me, we lose our permanent resident status if we don't get back in the next few months. Um, So hundreds of thousands of people are going to lose their permanent resident status. And I I think China's not too bent out of shape about that. And so I think no about face. I, I think that's right, Paul. I agree with you. Well, but it's part of this, this you know, increasingly draconian outlook that China has towards, towards Hong Kong. And you know, we had Paul Gillis on from Peking University yesterday on US China series talking about listings in you know, US list, Chinese listings in the United States and how Hong Kong has, has relaxed a lot of its listing rules to ensure that these Chinese companies that if they do get delisted from, from the US can come and have a ready home in, in Hong Kong. And it's just this this rapid merger of you know, the one country, two systems thing went out the window probably in, in 2014. One of the areas where things have got draconian is, you know, when I was in Hong Kong, I lived in Stanley and Stanley is a gorgeous part of the world. But one of the things that does exist in Stanley is the Chinese garrison. And there is a, and the army has a very big base down there. You were saying to me recently that the new head of the Hong Kong garrison is a former badass from Xinjiang who's come in to teach us a few lessons. Well, I think that's right. I, I was talking to a bunch of people yesterday and, and so a lot of my contacts in, in Hong Kong and some of my contacts in the intelligence community around the world. And this guy's a bad mofo. And, and we're talking about somebody who ran a, a highly trained, essentially a highly trained anti-terrorist commando unit who are trained in a lot of you know nasty things in urban warfare, marksmanship. And, and so forth. And so I, I think at, at the very least, I think this is basically a signal to Hong Kong, which is basically, as somebody said to me yesterday, who was a, a CEO of a bank in Hong Kong up until recently, get in line with, with CCP policy or we will crush you, I think is basically the message that uh, Hong Kong is getting from this guy. And I believe this is the second guy because the other guy who's in charge of the so what do you want to call it? The National Security Police in Hong Kong. That was the new police chief that came in to be head of the national security team after the national security law was passed. He was also a badass. So you have somebody from the, the political police detective, right? The, the, gosh, if you call it the political police. And now you have somebody from who's head of the garrison who are pretty much badasses. And mm. at the very least, it's a signal, don't mess. Don't try to secede. Don't try to claim independence and don't make trouble, especially if you're cooperating with foreign intelligence agencies. But, but Paul, hasn't that ship sailed? I mean, Kerry Lamb has well and truly made, made it clear which side of the fence she lies on 
the democracy movement is a is a shadow of itself. We only have to look at you know what happened with the in Victoria Park with the June fourth celebrations. Or the crushing is the wrong word because that's obviously puts it into context. But the dismantling mm. of the of the of the celebrations of uh, commiserations for June fourth. I mean, Hong Kong, from an, an official government standpoint, is well and truly, I'd say, well and truly in line with Beijing's wishes. Well, I think that's right. I think you said the right word, officially. But unofficially, this is the problem that you have with rebellions. They go underground. They become basically low-grade counter-terrorist movements. And so what you have is a lot of disgruntled people on the underground who want to make their voices known because their voice has been cut out of the political process. And you think of the IRA, right, in in Northern Ireland. I, I compare Hong Kong as sort of potentially a Northern Ireland where the UK has no question that that's British territory and the Northern Irish feel differently about that. And so I think that officially, you're correct, unofficially, I commissioned a couple of guys who were ex-British SAS to write uh, something for me for my clients. And they predicted a year ago that there would be a low-grade insurgency that was going to follow because your voice is cut out of the political process. And I think China is preparing for this. And We don't know where this is going to go, but I I think it it was a terrible mistake in 2019 to think that throwing Molotov cocktails and pushing grocery carts full of burning boxes at police was going to get you your independence. I think that was a catastrophic error on the part of Hong Kong. And I think those sentiments haven't changed much. No, I think that I think that's completely fair. And I, I, again, we looking at through through our ex our expat lens. I mean, to say that there's there's no consequences for for the for the Hong Kong economy, I think, is incredibly incredibly naive. That said, yes. I don't think I don't think Beijing gives a shit. At the end of the day, yeah, I, I often describe I often describe Hong Kong as the is the Greenwich, Connecticut of Shenzhen. It's a very nice place to live, but economically, it's not going to be relevant as relevant given you know what you see in the in the major city in the major city that is Shenzhen. But ha- yeah, you know, and you yeah. and I have talked about yeah. this at length, and we've got dozens of friends in in Hong Kong at the moment. How is there after the end of bonus season at a, at a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, a, you know, a JP Morgan, whoever it is? How do you not have an en masse exodus of senior Western bankers who have just turned around and their families have just said enough? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I've heard quite a few people are already going to leave. And certainly if they, if they don't leave by March, they're going to leave by July when school finishes for the kids. So I, I, I agree with you. I've already had several people who I know have left. You know, I left because I just, you could see this coming. I went to Singapore three years ago. I, I think more people will move out. To me, one of the questions that we have to ask is, what is the logical new hub for Asia Pacific? It's a question mark. I'm thinking more and more, a lot of people are, are becoming digital nomads. Like I'm a digital nomad right now because I can't get back into Singapore because they've stopped selling tickets until the end of the month. And then you have to get into a queue where they've severely curtailed tickets for getting back in. And so I could be here easily until March, April. Right. But the lo- but do you answer, answer your question as you worded it? The logical new hub is Singapore, right? That's the logical, that's the logical place. And if I'm if I'm Singapore, I'm I'm pitching businesses from Goldman Sachs to law firms to architectural firms, you name it, to come and put your headquarters in in, in Singapore, right? And and look, Singapore certainly has been draconian around COVID and one, and as, you, as you're well aware, there is a fairly sinister underbelly in terms of policy in, in Singapore to a, slew of, to a slew of different things. But at the oh, end of the day, oh. it's not going through the same sort of fundamental unravelling 
of its societal framework, like Hong Kong is. is I, yeah, I, Singapore I is what it is. Singapore yeah. is what it is, right? And yeah, we you accept that, but the prospect of Singapore changing dramatically going forward post COVID, right, is unlikely. So, in answer to your question, Singapore is the logical the logical place, even though yeah. the role of the digital nomad is going to grow exponentially, not just in Asia but globally. Yeah, correct, correct. I, I think Sydney has a chance to make a mark here. I think potentially Tokyo can take a, a little bit yep. back. Taipei and Seoul you know, are, are not international cities, right? There's zero English in both Seoul and Taiwan, yep. and so that's problematic. Uh, and I can't think of any. I think what's happening also, by the way, I think Jakarta, after two years of being cut out of, of Singapore, I think Jakarta is, is wanting to become its own its own uh, master as well. And so I think there's that, that, that's going to be, uh, uh, that's going to cut into Singapore's business for banking and for health tourism. Right. And, and, and look, at the, at the end of the day, with whether it's, um, whether it's RCEP or, or the other free trade agreements that are going on around the region, the digital side of things was, was a big sticking point with a lot of these regional trade agreements. And now you've got this fairly open no quasi laissez-faire approach to to data to to digital world, not data storage per se, but certainly in regards to DeFi yeah. and the like. Um, yeah. And again, you as a digital nomad, or and the slew of other people, they can set up set up footprints in Jakarta and in KL and and these sort of places. And the the need to have the 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 office the office near Raffles in Singapore or something in in Queens Road Central, those days are done. Those days yeah. those days are done. Agree, agree, agree. So, mate, world's getting back to normal with COVID. The disconnect we've seen—we've obviously seen this big jump in big jump in rates. Last time I looked, bond yields were almost positive, which is a groundbreaking thing for European fixed income. But, you know, but bond yields at cycle at cycle highs or post COVID post COVID yeah. highs. Where are rates going? I have very strong views that this is that that we're getting to the extent of the increase in rates. But love love to love to hear your thoughts and love to put that in the context of what do you think the signals coming out of commodity markets as, as well. I think we're, we're entering into a trap. It bothers me. I was thinking this morning that Amity Schles wrote a great book about the Depression. And in 1936, the world thought things were getting back to normal and that growth was resuming. And so, hey, let's raise rates and increase the reserve requirement and cut back on fiscal spending. And it came time for the 1936 election and Roosevelt turned to his advisor and said, okay, we should have no problem getting elected. We put all these people back to work. And his staff said, sir, they're unemployed again, right? I mean, fiscal stimulus is finite. So if you have a fiscal stimulus in 2021 and then you don't have any fiscal stimulus in 2022, you have a negative draft on your fiscal policy. And what we're looking at walking into is a trap of contractionary fiscal policy and contractionary monetary policy at the same time when you cannot afford that. Quantitative easing only works year on year. <laughs> That's the dirty secret Japan has discovered. You got to keep doing the same thing year after year in order to get growth because your year on year growth considerations matter for how many bonds you buy, for how much fiscal spending you do. And so it bothers me that we could be walking into a trap, a failed deal in the Senate because of Manchin yep. and Fed, which has done a very uh, aggressive U-turn, very aggressive U-turn in the space of 10 weeks, which I think so is very a, bad you've policy. You've got, you currently have a U.S. fiscal deficit of roughly 16% of GDP. So the mathematics is very simple. A deficit of 16% of GDP in one year 
and a deficit of 16% of GDP in the next year is basically zero growth, right? Correct. Yeah. Zero growth, growth contribution. And the concern that I have, and again, we this is, you know, we're at the start of 2022 and I'm jumping forward to the start of 2023. The start of 2023 is likely to see a Repub- the Republican Party have control of the House of Representatives. So statistically, and probably the Senate. Yeah. So statistically, the incumbent party has only added seats in two sessions since 1938. One was one was 98, one was 2002 after 9-11. The average swing against the party in the White House is 27 seats and the Democrats hold the House by eight. Right. So statistically, statistically, Republicans will take the House. That is not a political statement. That is just looking at the numbers. And the reality is that there is no way on God's green earth that this Republican Party, how can given how contentious the 2024 election with a high likelihood that Trump will run again, right, that they will allow the sort of social spending programs that Biden has advocated for, which Manchin has rejected. And I think that we are on the verge of seeing Tea Party 2.0 when the Republican parties take the House and suddenly, amen, brother, they find they find fiscal religion. Right. And if you take mm-hmm. that, you take that, you take that deficit from 16% of GDP to 6% of GDP, which by the way, would be still on the upper quartile of deficit since the Second World War, right? Mm-hmm. That's a trillion dollars of lost output. Trillion dollars. That's an almost guaranteed, guaranteed recession. Right. So for me, the forget the the base effects of coming in Q2 of this year of lower growth and lower inflation and the like, and the Fed tightening into a lower growth and lower inflation outlook, middle off a high base. But at the end of the big, big picture, Paul, what all, all fiscal spending does is take take from take future growth and bring it into the here and now. COVID, yeah. We had to plug the holes from COVID, but there is no free lunch here, right? There is no free lunch. This, this Republican Party is not going to support a deficit of 16% of GDP that is driven by social spending programs, right? And that is a contraction. And hence the reason why I think that the Fed, the Fed may be able to go with this cycle. I think four times it'll go four times this year, probably two times in 2023. But the terminal rate for this cycle will be 150 basis points, which is yet another low peak in terms of the interest rate cycle, and takes us back really to the same sort of dynamics we had in the previous decade, which is low growth, tech tech disinflation, poor West poor Western demographics, and I would argue over time deteriorating productivity as well. That's not a, that's not an out. That is not a good scenario for a someone who you know. Given your given your views on debt dynamics, that's not a good scenario. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, I, and by the way, I think that back in two thousand sixteen and seventeen, I was just saying this is a catastrophe in the making for the Fed. Powell, I'll never forget it. Powell said, "Oh, we're just going to put rate increases on autopilot, and I'm going to just go to the office every day. I'll come in on Christmas and Thanksgiving." I thought that was extremely irresponsible because it just shows an absence of understanding of what happens during quantitative easing. And of course, when the COVID happened, we had this sudden collapse because rates were way too high. And so rates had to collapse down to zero overnight. And I think we're going to have the same thing happen all over again. Quantitative easing, central bank balance sheets are not designed to shrink. I've looked at banks for 15 years. I mean, if you want to shrink a balance sheet of a bank, you better be prepared to have it collapse. I was at Lehman Brothers. I saw it. I, I said that in a meeting in March 2008. I said, you guys do realize that Lehman Brothers' balance sheet is not designed to shrink. And everyone looked at me like I had nine heads. Balance sheet dynamics are very dangerous when you try to shrink something because you, you, 
end up almost always eating into your capital and wrecking your asset base. Well, but Paul, remember though, and this is the whole notion that I think the market has got wrong in terms of the whole notion of quantitative type, right? So QT is the acronym. Name which central bank in the since since Japan started the QE experiment in in 1996, right? How many central banks have actually sold bonds, not let them mature, but sold bonds to reduce their balance sheets? The answer to that question is zero, right? So there has never been an instance where a central bank has ended quantitative easing and sold securities to reduce their balance sheet. Now, they've let they've let bonds mature and they haven't replaced those bonds and you saw yeah. that in and you saw that in 2015, 16, 17, right? In in the US case and you saw that in Europe and and the like, but they've never ever sold a security. They've never they've never rung the Goldman Sachs fixed income desk and said, "Excuse me, can I get a bid in 50 million two years?" That's yeah, and that's right. And so uh, when I talked to the head of the IMF liaison to central banks about this exact question back in 2010 with a client, very sharp client from Capital, he gave the answer. That, that was exactly the question that this guy from Capital asked him. Give me the example. And, and this guy was, was an IMF veteran of like 25 years, and he gave three examples which were not very heartening. And these were central banks that had a terrible inflation problem, and therefore the bonds on the balance sheet just blew out, right? right. I mean, rates blew out. And the bond prices, you know, fell apart, and therefore you, you're eating into your capital. And that was three were Lebanon and uh, Philippines, and another one in Central America. I want to say it was either uh, Panama or Nicaragua. One of the one of those right, but designed countries. to designed to generate liquidity, just purely to get liquidity for the central bank. Well, that's right. At some point in the day, central banks are going to have to do something to provide liquidity, right? If there mm-hmm. is a problem, that, that's a central. That's a that's a mandate of a central bank. You're exactly right. right, and 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 they have to provide liquidity to support the currency, right? Because they're doing two things at the same time. You got to support the currency, and you have to support the interbank market. And so this is where you can get into tight spots. And of course, what happened with the Philippine Central Bank in 1991 was. It, it blew up its capital base, and so it had to go to the Philippine Congress and get recapitalized. And at that point, the Philippine Congress says, okay, we'll recapitalize you. We're taking over because you guys are right. idiots. So we're, we're going to take over. We're going to take away your sovereignty, and we're going to politicize the central bank, and that's, that's not a good outcome either. And so the Philippines had 10 years of inflation. And, and so these are the kinds of dilemmas that you have to be very careful about. So I was talking to a client this morning about this issue in the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan's very smart. You can only have so much growth. If you have too much growth in Japan, you're going to get inflation. That's bad, right? So, so the growth, the nominal growth is always, go back 10 years, Paul. It's amazing. The nominal growth, the standard deviation of nominal growth in Japan, zero. <laughs> go look well, at the nominal. Bad, demogra- bad, bad demographics certainly help you out with that. Amen, brother. And if you get too much deflation, right, you destroy the banks. Too much inflation, you wreck the central bank. Too much deflation, you wreck the banks. And so you have to have that that happy medium, and you got to control that very carefully, because you do have to have some degree of growth in order to keep the private sector going and to whatever encourage productivity, encourage innovation, and encourage industrial production of some kind, even if it's not productive. Right, but Paul, let's put putting 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 China to one side, though. I mean, if you look at the last since really since since 2010, the world from a growth standpoint has been remarkably stable outside of sharp fluctuations in fiscal deficits. Right, so the U.S. economy mm-hmm. is a two to two and a half percent economy. 
right? Yep. has been consistently yep. that. During times yep. of fiscal compression in the Obama years, it was a one and a half to two percent economy. During during the tax cut eras of, um, yep. of Trump in 17, 18, and obviously the pandemic, it was sharply, sharply higher. Europe is, is a one to one and a half percent economy, right? They've been talking to spending in Germany was a little higher. Other times, a little right. lower. Yeah, Same with economies the are what they are. Well, and I think it's also been very carefully organized. In fact, I want to say also, look at the uh, percent of GDP for all three central banks, and they're almost identical. These guys are doing this at the same time in the same way, because when they do it at the same time in the same way, there's no change in currencies. Correct. If somebody does it too much or too little, China's doing too little, so the RMB is appreciating like crazy. But I think China's going to have, I believe within two years, China's going to be doing quantitative easing. But you, you, you heard it here first. And rates are, are, going, to, are going to come crashing down uh, because China's going to go through its own propping up the real estate market by way of fiscal activity, which is going to have to be supported by the PBOC. And, and so what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if, if China does it in the same way, at the same time as everybody else, all the currencies can remain stable. Yeah, and I think, Matt, I think that's a, I think that's often missed with people who talk about dollar debasement, and obviously there's implications about what that means for crypto and all this sort of stuff. But you know, you know so yeah. Jeff Gunlack, for example, was talking about twin deficits leading to the dollar's demise. But if everyone is doing the same stuff, ex China, right? Yeah. You know, the value of a currency is one versus the other, and if the other is doing exactly what you're doing. Look, you yeah. had extraordinary growth in, in, in the money base in a slew of countries in the last several years. And you had yeah. two from a from a using, say, a trade-weighted dollar as the guide. The last two years, really quite boring in the currency world, right? It didn't yeah, really that's right. Much. Brazil because moved, they've all been doing it the moved. same. Uh-huh. US dollar, yeah. pretty dull. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so I, I compare it to if you have a lot of like prize runners uh, running a marathon and they all stop training and they all go to the bar every night, Everyone's still going to run the marathon, but everyone's going to suffer in the same way in their times. And so they're all going to finish the race about the same time, but it's going to be a minute slower. <laughs> and so this is what's happening. The world's moving slower because everybody has stopped training for the marathon and they're all drinking beer at the pub. And, and so this is what's happening. And I think that China has been the healthiest runner. And I think that time is up right now, given the state of the real estate market. Because as you and I both know, China and provincial governments fund themselves on land sales. And that's sort of come to an end. And you're looking at you know a lot of bureaucrats taking 20% pay cuts, and that's going to dig into growth. And look, and look, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that when we look at GDP around the world, it's not apples and oranges, because different countries have different ways of measuring it. And yeah, China yeah. obviously puts property investment into GDP as an element of, as a contributor to GDP in terms of the, the physical stock of buildings, right, which mm-hmm. obviously is very different to what happens in many parts of the other other parts of the world. So if you would, even if you had GDP, sorry, if you had property markets running at flat year on flat year, on year that's a pretty sizable negative contribution mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Chinese mm-hmm. official GDP relative yeah. to what it would be in the US and, and Europe. Yeah. Yeah, agree, agree, okay. agree. Yeah, mate. How does your week look? What do you got planned this week? I'm doing some other stuff on the banks and looking at the banks. And, and of course, what's interesting is the banks themselves, outside of governments, are pretty healthy. I want to say one other thing about what I heard yesterday, which is interesting about this new dude that's taken over the garrison in Hong Kong. Yep. I think this is also a very sharp move on the part of uh, Xi Jinping against his Shanghai mafia, who are very close with Hong Kong mafia. 
and, and it's kind of a nail in their coffin as well. It's like, don't mess, do, do not mess, leave Hong Kong alone or I will come after you. And I think this is as much a message to Western intelligence agencies as it is with the Shanghai group, Zhang Zemin's group, who are you know, close, historic, very close historical ties to the billionaires who run the property market in Hong Kong. I think that's a very important point that, that I had uh, picked up yesterday. Interesting, interesting. Well, mate, look, let's have a great week. I've got a bunch of stuff with Climate Transform, which we'll uh, get into. We're starting, that's in full force. And mate, you and I will chat this time next week. Great. And the New Yorker has a piece out on the melting of the peat moss in Siberia. That's pretty alarming. And so there's a front cover issue on New Yorker. So check it out because it's a pretty alarming stuff. Will do. Have a great week, mate. Talk to you shortly. Okay, great. Bye. See ya.